Now there's a phrase I'd never heard before. We've all heard of the Bermuda Triangle, but what on earth is the Irish Triangle? It refers to a section of the Irish Sea in between Scotland and Ireland where, in the second half of the 20th century, a lot of fishing boats began sinking or having accidents. Let's look at the so-called Irish Triangle and what it had to do with nuclear war. The Irish Sea, of course, lies between Ireland and Britain. I've paddled in the Irish Sea a million times on holidays in Blackpool. And if you go onto Google Maps and scroll up going north, you'll notice the Irish Sea eventually feeds into the Atlantic Ocean. And just as you approach Northern Ireland, you'll notice Scotland starts to jut out. Port Patrick is reaching across the sea to Bangor and Belfast. But then... Scotland goes all shy and curves back in, and in this big curve of water, which scoops the land back and away from Ireland, is the huge Firth of Clyde. Follow the Firth of Clyde on Google Maps and it goes past some pretty places, well known and loved in Scotland. Isle of Arran, um, Isle of Bute, Largs, Greenock, oh, actually well, no, not Greenock, uh, no one. No one loves Greenock. And then once we get past Greenock, we start to see names on the map which, unlike Arran and Butte, don't have pleasant associations. Names which make you think of the sea and the beach in a 99. Instead, we see names which might put a bit of a chill down your spine. Holy Law, The Gare Law, Coolport, Faz Lane. How quickly Scotland's map goes from the nice to the nuclear. Whether you approve of nuclear weapons or not, surely no one trails their finger across the map and smiles fondly when they arrive at this neck of the woods. So the Firth of Clyde, during much of the Cold War, contained the nuclear submarines of two countries, Britain and America. The British in Gairloch and the Americans practically next door in the Holy Loch. Scotland, of course, has millions of lochs, so why were these two chosen? Well, the main reason is that they are sea lochs. You can sail in and out of them. They give access to the Atlantic Ocean and so to the rest of the world. No point sticking your subs in, for example, Loch Ness might make sense to do it there as there's already a monster in Loch Ness so why not chuck some more horror in? But Loch Ness isn't open to the sea so your subs will just go round and round in circles occasionally bumping into Nessie. Ouch! 
So choosing Holy Loch and Gearloch meant easy access to the sea, but also access to civilization. These lochs are relatively close to Glasgow and to airports and to facilities for the crew and the workers. And they are both sufficiently deep. That's right, they're close to Glasgow, where I am right now. So back in the 60s, the British gave the Americans permission to move into Holy Loch, and then we moved our nuclear submarines in next door at the Gear Loch. Squeezed between mountains on one side and a loch on the other, Faz Lane on the Scottish west coast has been the home of the UK's nuclear deterrent for half a century. Every few months, a Vanguard-class submarine quietly slips off into the Clyde and out of sight. That's the last anyone will see of it until it returns to base. The UK has four of these nuclear submarines. There is always one at sea, 365 days a year, giving that constant deterrent to the United Kingdom. They usually patrol around the North Atlantic, moving very slowly, very quietly, so they're not detected by the Russians. By the 60s, of course, nuclear bombers were beginning to seem slow and lumbering and old-fashioned. And by contrast, the idea of keeping your nukes on a submarine out at sea was very attractive. Not only was it more high-tech, but it meant they wouldn't be sitting on air bases right next to civilians. Consider this quote from Admiral Arleigh Burke of the US Navy in 1959. Move deterrents out to sea, where the real estate is free, and where they are far away from me. So, in the 60s, the Americans were developing Polaris submarine-launched missiles. And when they were doing that, we in Britain were still bumbling along with bombers. Or perhaps considering the failed rocket blue streak and when that was dumped we pinned all our hopes on the american missile skybolt which would be delivered by our bombers the famous v bombers but both of those projects failed and were abandoned and so britain was at a bit of a loss with nothing to use now but the old-fashioned drop it from a plane bombs and so when the Americans asked if they might have a UK base for their fancy new Polaris submarines, the British were open to it, if they could perhaps get in on a bit of the action. There followed a big battle between Kennedy and Macmillan about whether to let the British have Polaris and what conditions would be attached to it, and we'll save all that for another episode. But yes, eventually Britain were given Polaris and the Americans got their submarine base. Which brings us to the Irish Triangle. The presence now of two submarine bases on the Clyde, and the possible snooping by enemy Soviet subs, meant that the Irish Sea was now quite busy, both with traffic on the water and under it. The book Facing the Bear, which is about Scotland in the Cold War by Trevor Royal, says the Irish Sea at this point gained the nickname of the Submarine Highway. Lots of subs beneath the waves and British and Irish fishing boats above. In the chapter called Frontline Scotland, the book lists several incidents throughout the 70s and 80s 
where fishing boats in the Irish Sea seem to catch submarines in their nets and then find themselves dragged across the water or in some cases sunk. So many boats were suddenly being damaged or dragged under and of course lives were lost that the Irish Independent referred to it as the Irish Triangle. In one incident, an Irish trawler called the Summer Morn caught an American submarine in its nets and found itself being dragged backwards across the sea for 20 miles. This happened in 1987 and the skipper, a Mr Eric Cully, was forced to cut the lines to his nets. Either that or be dragged under. When he finally got safely home, he and his crew inspected the thing that they'd snagged in their net. The Irish Independent described it as a large black torpedo-like object thought to be a piece of sonar or radar. And Mr Cully told the paper, I'm sure it was an American submarine. That thing has American markings on it. Well, the MOZ in London said it's got nothing to do with us and suggested that perhaps the summer morn had caught itself on an underwater telephone cable. Whereas the Americans at Holy Law just said they could offer no comment. Two years later, the same paper reported the loss of a Belgian trawler in the Irish Sea. She was lost along with her six-man crew. The paper said that over the last eight years, a total of 17 boats have disappeared in the Irish Sea or off the Scottish coast, half of them in submarine exercise areas. Other newspaper articles from Ireland at the time said, Killers of the Deep, that's what the Dublin Evening Herald said in 87. Silent Menace Under the Sea, said the Irish Independent in November 1990. Other headlines I found said, Terror of the Deep, Clearer Sea of Troubles, Secret Menace of the Irish Sea. Another notorious incident involved the Irish boat Shiralga. This was back in 1982. She was capsized and sank off Dublin when HMS Porpoise was caught up in her nets. Thankfully, the men were rescued by passing trawlers, but the MOD again denied involvement, but were finally compelled to pay out compensation to the skipper of Shiralga. We were victims of a hit and run at sea, the captain Raymond McAvoy said. If it happened on the roads, the defendants would be in jail. He went on to say that the submarine just left the five of us to drown in the water and carried on about his business. Luckily for us, the incident happened in daylight where others could see our predicament. Had it been dark at the time, none of us would have been around to tell the tale. With the rising level of incidents in the Irish Triangle, of course there were protests. The Irish Fishermen's Organisation said that these incidents were costing money in terms of ruined nets and sometimes lost boats and sometimes, of course, lost lives. But the British and Americans weren't about to hand out maps and directions of where their subs would be at any time. We all know one of the main strengths of a submarine is that it's relatively silent and hidden. 
And so there was a sense of anger and hopelessness from the Irish fishermen. It was also noted that even if, by some miracle, the Irish government were able to ban submarines from their waters, how could they enforce that? They don't have the military might or equipment to patrol and detect foreign submarines. Environmental groups tried to get involved, and they said the Irish Sea should be declared a nuclear-free zone, and that there was no need for the Americans and British to be using the Irish Sea when they had the North Sea on the other side. The Irish government said in response, quote, These incidents are accidents, and the submarines are not breaking international law by patrolling the Irish Sea. So what was the solution then to these incidents, accidents? Well, it was asked why a nuclear submarine run by the biggest and most powerful navies on Earth can't fit equipment to detect a trawler alongside them. These things have the power on board to end the world. Why can't they see there's a trawler nearby? But the solution came... I suppose with the end of the Cold War, which helped ease the danger as the Americans packed up and left the Holy Law. As for Ireland, if you listened to my earlier episode about Ireland, which is simply called Ireland, you'll see that during the Cold War, their main worry in terms of civil defence and preparing the population for nuclear war, their main worry was fallout. They weren't expecting to be directly hit with nuclear bombs in any war, but they did expect to be engulfed in fallout from the Holocaust occurring just across the water. So maybe these Irish Triangle incidents were just another nuclear danger posed by their awkward neighbour across the Irish Sea. Thank you everyone for listening. I hope you have enjoyed it. Remember you can get me on Twitter at Julie A. McDowell or on Facebook under Nuclear Britain or through my website juliemcdowell.com And remember if you enjoy the podcast and want to donate something each month to help the running costs you can do that through the Patreon website. Take a look at mine at patreon.com forward slash atomic hobo And let me give a special shout out this week to the following patrons. Adam Gilmore, Alan Christie, Brian Outlaw, Colin McGee, Craig Bushman, Damien Ryan, Douglas Greenshields, Ed Carter and Helen McHale. I think soon we will do another uh, look at a nuclear war film. Those episodes, when I do them, are always quite popular. I think we might look at the film Testament soon. And just a reminder that Testament is available free to watch on YouTube. Testament is an unusual nuclear war film in that it is not all about horror and war. Instead, the action takes place in small town America, which is not in a target zone. So it's not like the day after. It's small town America. And the residents arguably have a worse fate. At least those who would be at ground zero would be gone in an instant. Those in Testament die slowly from fallout and we see the community crumble and fall apart. We see the threads that hold the community together snap, snapped by nuclear war. Of course, that is why the greatest nuclear war film of all is called Threads. It's about what happens when your society breaks down. It's not just about the impact of a nuclear attack. It's about the collapse of society. 
So I think shortly, uh, over the next few weeks, we will look at Testament, if anyone wants to join in with that by watching it in advance of the podcast. It is there on YouTube. So thank you everyone for listening and I'll be back next Monday with another episode.